This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to 3RRR's Radio Therapy or as we are now called Radio Maybe. Those that were listening last week know exactly what I'm talking about, but never mind, we're back and we're back in force. In the studio this Sunday morning is the lovely and brilliant Dr. Anabolics and me, the old fox tall man. Plus, we have two very special guests, as Retina would always say. Medical cannabis. What's the difference between medical cannabis and medical heroin or medical amphetamines? Well, we are going to have a discussion. And who better to help that along than Senator Richard Di Natale, leader of the Greens? What he doesn't know about hooch is just not worth knowing. We have a very important and special guest, Professor or Associate Professor Alan Young, who is in the house and he's an expert in the area of sleep disorders now this is really interesting stuff you're going to really be fascinated by this alan is uh, a specialist physician and practicing respiratory specialist and uh, i've got a couple of fascinating cases i want to throw at him and see what we can make of it plus there's been an international conference so we're going to update ourselves and our knowledge on what's happening in sleep medicine so come on, you know you want to listen in. Be part of the radio therapy team here on 3 Triple R. Ah, Dr. Anna Bikes. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Did you listen to the show last week? Look, I heard most of it. I, I did. Uh, it was a little bit of a little bit of a shock to the system. It but... was uh, marinara a go go. <laughs> I mean, weren't they wonderful? Weren't, weren't they, they just wonderful? Actually, it was our best show of the year, uh, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's not go too far. Come on. No, no, it was, no, it was uh, sensational. It was absolutely sensational. Thank uh, you, Bron. Thank you, Shane. Yes. And Dr. Malus uh, is still receiving psychotherapy <laughs> <laughs> after an hour. Of free-floating uh, medical chit-chat with a, a marine biologist and a scientist. He's not recovered, apparently. Well, good luck to him. And look, has, I have to say, it was the first time in, what, 20 years 20 that years, that has happened years, to yes, us, yes, but yes. never mind. It was uh, such water the, around the ridge. Such is the power of Triple R when people at no notice can actually uh, create probably a really good radio. It's and also sells how, aren't, aren't scientists lovely people on both they sides are. of our hour? They're they lovely are. people. They are. Now, uh, Alan... Welcome. Well, this is your first gig on radiotherapy. This is indeed, Dr. Tolman. Yeah, so uh, now we know each other, so we're not going to pretend that we actually don't. So I've got all the dirt on you. Uh, but you're going <laughs> to... And likewise. Oh, good, I can't. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Generally not reciprocated. Uh, but we're going to go into uh, an, uh, talking about respiratory medicine, sleep medicine in particular, which is your particular area of interest. Yeah, that's right. So I work as a sleep specialist um, here in Melbourne at uh, Eastern Health. So if you're not off during the hour, I'll understand. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And look, I've just come from um, the, the biggest national sleep conference, um, which was held here in Melbourne. So I've got some interesting updates about um, what's the latest and greatest in sleep medicine. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I've got a... I found in our box today a package, and I'm going to do a plug here. But unbeknownst to me, my eldest son had written to the station and said and requested a little donation from the station for the uh, Lawn Aries Inlet uh, School uh, Fair, which is on Saturday next week, Saturday the 31st of October, at uh, the Aries Inlet Campus School. And lo and behold, I find in the in the radiotherapy box a packet addressed for Otis Tallman <laughs> fantastic <laughs> so it, he's just gone ahead and you know not bothered to even inquire as whether I'd help him out no he's just taken it on his own bat well you described yourself this morning as, as the fox in the room which I thought was wonderful and I think there might be a, some genetic linkage down there yes. I think you've got another one in your house yeah no that that fox uh, that uh, oh, oh there comes one of the Einstein go goes <laughs> <laughs> pulling faces at us yeah. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Uh, now, we have to apologise. McZiff is at a uh, very important uh, analyst conference in Byron Bay uh, okay. this week. Uh, he's uh, he's uh, doing some research up there, as is um, 
Dr. Uh, SK, he's he's gone. He's actually doing a legitimate uh, conference, so he's going to come back a full bottle. He's gone to Taiwan. Oh, what's he looking at? Do you know it there? Uh, it's more of the dementing disorders and treatments thereof. So uh, we'll, they'll both be coming back in and uh, giving and giving us a, an update. Actually, I had somebody tell me that they'd gone on a surfing trip to Taiwan. I never knew. There was surf in Taiwan, but apparently there are some incredible waves in Taiwan. Well, they were talking about making waves on um, Radio Marinara this morning. Mm. I was listening to it coming in, and mm. um, there's mm. all sorts of wave-making machines there and are. things they can do them to sculpt sand. And yeah, no, they're, they're, it's, it's a big industry. Mm. But, uh, look, what we're going to do, we're going to... Um, because we're going to get uh, Senator uh, Richard Di Natale on the phone and then we're going to come back into the show and we're going to talk about cannabis and try and sort of... Uh, take it apart a little bit about what this is you know what this is about in terms of the medical utility of using cannabis uh why it's difficult to do it now why is government getting involved why isn't this just purely a research endeavor uh, funded through the normal nh and mrc uh process um and uh, we'll we'll have that discussion but first of all we're going to have a track and we'll be straight back you're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Now, online we have Senator Richard Dinatale. Are you there, Richard? I am. How are you, Paul? Uh, I'm very good, thank you. Now, how are you going down there? Is the sun out or are we getting some rain? No, it's a beautiful day here in uh, the Otway Ranges. Excellent. Uh, I reckon uh, a good day to be at the beach. Ah, so uh, you'll be cutting loose after this and going down to Lawn, Lawn Point, no doubt. Uh, I don't think there's a huge swell on at the moment. I might just pot around the house and uh, do a bit of weeding. Okay. Now, seriously, we're going to talk about cannabis. We are. And medical are cannabis indeed. in particular. So what's your take on what's going on currently from from the government well, point of view? Well, we've we've been really keen to see... Uh, the change uh, around medicinal cannabis. In fact, we've we've really been driving a lot of that from behind the scenes. I had a bill drafted to try and get some cross-party support for, which we were successful in, and um, credit to, I think, all sides of politics as they recognise that there's a big appetite for this reform and that it makes sense on the basis of science. And so um, what government has done is it's sort of adopted half of the legislation that we're proposing. That is, it, it will allow medicinal cannabis to be grown under a regulated framework, a bit like the, the framework for growing poppies for, uh, yeah. um, you know, morphine. opiate. Uh, yep. Yep. Yeah, for morphine and, and other opiates. So uh, the same sort of framework for accrediting growers. Yes. Um, the, the, the big problem with the legislation is there's no process for approving the use of the drug. At the moment, I suspect they'll be growing it simply for clinical trials. I think the time's come for us to be allowing doctors to prescribe it for certain conditions. Uh, and that's and until we get approval through the TGA, then even though we're going to be able to grow the um, product, we won't actually be able to uh, prescribe it. So that's like um, what we do uh, in some circumstances where we actually prescribe amphetamines. I mean, they're an illicit drug. You can't have, hold, have them without a, uh, a script, but there are certainly medical u- utility in using that drug in certain circumstances. So this would be a, a similar principle. Well, yes, but the, I suppose the difference here is we're talking about a product that can be grown really, you know, in someone's backyard if they want Correct. to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it, unlike other opiates and amphetamines, it, it's actually the raw product that can be consumed. And here's where the big problem is in terms of, um, you know, the reason the, the cannabis hasn't actually been um, uh, promoted heavily by the pharmaceutical industry. Because it's a natural product, it's uh, it, you know very, very difficult to get a patent. You can try and patent the extraction process or uh, something related to how the drug itself is, the, the strain of the drug, for example, there are different strains of plants and so on. Um, but the actual compounds you can't because they are natural compounds and uh, so the, the industry has had no incentive to use the traditional pathway that is through the TGA uh, and then looking to get a, a listing and so it's sort of been in limbo a little bit. There's very good science for 
its effectiveness for a number of conditions. For example, as a second-line agent for uh, nausea, um, chemotherapy-induced yeah. nausea, we yeah. know that the evidence is, is very clear on that, that it's, a, it's an effective second-line treatment. Mm. The problem is, of course, it's not a proof of that use because we haven't had the industry um, try and use the traditional TGA pathway to get a patent for it. Yes. And, uh, you know, the other thing, of course, is the industry knows that it's competing with a very you know, a relatively cheap, illicit product. So there aren't the incentives for industry to take it up. And that's why ultimately you need to have uh, a separate process. It's a, it's a unique drug. It's covered by a range of international conventions, being an illegal drug. There's the 1961 Convention on Narcotics. And so uh, what, what needs to happen is we need to get, we need to have a pathway for being able to approve it that's a little separate from conventional pharmaceutical pathways. Hence the role of government. Yes. Okay. So what about in the circumstances where you take the, the, the main molecule in, in cannabinoids and you, you methylated it, you put a, you, you altered it in some minor way, that would be patentable, would it not? Absolutely. The issue, though, with cannabis is, and this is where some of the interesting science is being done, is that there are a range of cannabinoids in the cannabis plant. So yes. THC is the psychoactive component. Yeah. Uh, interesting, interestingly, the other component that has therapeutic value is cannabidiol. Now, cannabidiol uh, is something that has been... It's actually... It prevents the... Uh, it's a blocker, if you yep. like, of, of yep. THC. Yep. And so it reduces the psychoactive impact. It's probably protective against psychosis. There's some very interesting literature emerging yes. that it may be a treatment for psychosis. And then, of course, there are a range of other cannab cannabinoids. There are many of them. So you've got THC, cannabidiol, and many other cannabinoids. And there's also some evidence that they work synergistically, that together they produce some of those effects. And yeah. so yeah. to take one compound out, uh, and, and the industry's tried to do this, and there are some synthetic cannabinoids, they've had very limited, I think, value. Yes. Uh, and most of, the, most of the studies that have been done have been done on the... Um, you know the extract uh, of the yeah. cannabis plants, which includes those that full range of cannabinoids. Yeah. So to be, f it's fair to say that really this is never going to be um, lucrative enough for mainstream pharmaceutical companies to go out on a limb and invest in you know phase two and phase three proper, uh, well not phase two or three clinical trials, which you know cost millions of dollars to run. That's exactly right. I mean, you've got to remember that. <laughs> The issue of being able to get a patent is critical. Yeah. You can't patent a natural product, and you don't want to be able to. You know, you're competing with a drug that is cheap and readily available on the illicit market. And so, for both of those reasons, incentives for industry to um, patent the drug just don't. Uh, they're just not strong enough, and hence government needs to step in and play a role. So. If I read this correctly, then the possession of uh, or the growth of, of cannabis by a, an individual would still be prohibited by law. That's right. Yes, yeah. so it would only be it would be a bit like poppies. You can't you can't cultivate poppies yeah. uh, for your own personal use. But um, if you're an accredited grower and there's a there'll be strict um, accreditation requirements uh, set up through this process that would mean you can do it on a larger more industrial scale yeah. uh, you'll have farmers i suspect who will see that there's an opportunity for a, a local cannabis market yeah. uh and then the processing will occur probably on site i mean this is one of the things that um you know there's some discussion around whether raw product should be made available or it should only be extracts yeah. uh, in the form of um uh, tinctures and uh, yeah. other oral preparations. Yeah. One of the disadvantages of that is that um, you you um, have a more immediate effect. Uh, you avoid first-pass metabolism and so on uh, through vaporised forms of the natural product. And so there's a strong argument that we should be allowing also the, the natural product um, to be used in a vaporised form as well as oral products. So much the same as uh, nicotine delivery with e-cigarettes where it's exactly, vaporised yeah. and yeah. It directly inhaled. But we don't That's want, right. that way, we don't want don't it want associated smoking. with smoking, though. That's, That's right. The key. No, you don't want people smoking it, and that's, of course, one of the things here is that often the way it is consumed is through smoking, and the last thing we want to be doing is encouraging 
people to consume something that has therapeutic benefit in a harmful way like smoking. Do you think government has any appetite for decriminalising the uh, the growth of of marijuana, holus bolus? When you look at the equation of cost versus benefit and the cost of enforcement versus, you know, if that money was diverted into drug diversion programs, I mean, it just seems that we've got this drug completely out of whack with what it's... uh, you know, the amount of effort going into Absolutely. Uh, to this is ridiculous. Yeah, look, I was in Portugal earlier this year. It was interesting. Portugal had taken a, what was then a radical approach with all illicit drugs, not just cannabis, and they said we're not going to start enforcing um, uh, penalties against individuals who use drugs. We're going to divert our policing uh, budget, the, the budgets that were clogging up courts and so on with with um, possession charges and we're going to spend all that on health and social services for all of these drugs and they've had very very I think a very positive uh, impact you know they um, uh, based on a whole range of indicators from drug use amongst young people to harms associated with drugs HIV hepatitis C transmission overdoses number of people in treatment crime and so on all those indicators have improved since they did that mm. Which really just demonstrates that what we're doing is really, uh, I think it's it's unsustainable. At some point in the future, uh, things will change, and they are changing very much around the world with regards to cannabis. You're seeing, obviously, in the United States yeah. now, two states that have legalised it. Interesting, the Canadian Prime Minister only a few days ago said that one of his aims was to have a regulated cannabis market in Canada. This is a mainstream uh, uh, liberal politician in, in Canada. Uh, many South American countries, Spain and so on, moving towards regulated supply. So I think it's inevitable here in Australia that that debate will happen. Um, I think at the moment my, my aim is not to confuse the issue of medicinal cannabis with the issue of recreational or illicit use. You know, I've been yes. very keen to keep those two debates separate because yep. I think they are. Yes. Uh, but we, we drastically need a new approach to what we're doing with illicit drugs in this country. It, it really is... Uh, um, it's a difficult problem. I've worked in the area as a drug and alcohol clinician. I've seen the harm that illicit drugs do. But what we're doing at the moment is making a bad problem worse and actively yeah. creating harm, I think. Now, Dr Anabolics has a question for you. Hi, Richard. How are you? G'day. I'm well. Uh, listen, I've just come from a, a, a criminal justice conference, actually. What you just said is hitting a, a, a ring a bell for me. There, We've heard uh, experts from America say that um, in their experience in, in one area, in one city in America that they've uh, legalised access to medical marijuana, they're finding their results bear out very strongly, the fact that, that it turns out that available marijuana is a reverse gateway pathway. In other words, the more marijuana yeah. they've used, the less illicit drugs in less of other drugs that they're finding uh, they're having trouble with. People are using pot instead of using speed and other things. Have you you heard of that? Yes, it's it's interesting. I have, and in fact there have been a couple of studies out of the States that have demonstrated a decrease in opiate overdose deaths in those States that have allowed medicinal cannabis to be used. So what Mm -hmm. you're seeing is some people who may have been using an opiate for chronic pain have switched across to medicinal cannabis, Mm -hmm. uh, and the consequence of that is that we know that some people who use opiates, uh, you get tolerance, and over time, some people will move into more harmful use of the drug. And so, you're seeing a decrease in overdose uh, from opiates in those states with medicinal cannabis. And so, again, demonstrating some benefits. There's also some early, I think it's still anecdotal, but uh, and they're looking into this, but uh, because of the decreased use of harmful drinking behaviour and some of the impacts associated with uh, alcohol, particularly road fatalities, uh, maybe on the decrease in those states where cannabis has been regulated. So it's interesting that um, while there's this fear that it's a gateway drug, as you said, it may in fact be the opposite. Mm. Now, look, the, I mean, what do you think the time frame is, though, in Australia for this change? Is this a, a two, three, four, five decade proposition? Well, firstly, with medicinal cannabis, I suspect we'll get something done in the federal parliament by the end of this year and possibly next, possibly early next year. And yeah. I think we, we're not far away from having regulated medicinal cannabis, hopefully available um, under a script from doctors. Mm. With regards to drug law reform, I don't know. I, I think it's inevitable. My, my, my approach has been... Um, as somebody who's worked as a doctor in the field, uh, if I don't start raising it as an issue, then no one will. Mm. So I plan to 
spend a bit more time talking about it, mm. uh, looking at potentially hosting a drug summit, bringing over some international experts, and really beginning to have a national conversation about mm. drug policy in this country. And while we've, you know, we've had a, the discussion around ice and or crystal methamphetamine, uh, and I think much of that has been uninformed and driven from a non-evidence-based perspective, um, it's an opportunity to start talking about how we do things a little differently. Um, my view is that, uh, you know, we previously in the uh, 80s, 90s were leaders in this area. We medically supervised injecting facilities, yep. needle and syringe. Uh, in Alex Wodak. HIV. Yep. Yes, that's right. I mean, we, we were one of the success stories around HIV prevention among injecting drug users, largely because we took a pragmatic evidence-based approach and said we're going to make clean needles available to people who use drugs and that was very controversial at the time but uh, very successful uh we were almost we almost had a heroin trial i mean we had every yes. state government we had the labor opposition in 1999 all saying this is what we need to do in response to the heroin epidemic and it was only the intervention of john howard at the very last minute that knocked that on the head now back then we were we were leading the world with some of these reforms and we haven't spoken about it for no, over a decade. Richard, and uh, I think my job is to try and get it back on the agenda. Richard, you know, I was around those times too and I remember, I reckon the single biggest group that made the biggest difference to those almost successes were the cops. Once the cops yes. came out publicly and said, this is crazy, we can do better by treating um, drug use, drug abuse as, a, as an illness rather than a, as a policing matter. Once they started being very vocal locally, we got lots of movement happening. They were very influential. Are they playing a role in this for you as well? Yeah, they are. And we, start, we had Mick Palmer, for example, who was the former head of the Australian Federal Police, who has now come out and has become an advocate for uh, drug law reform. Ken Lay, I think, who was headed, yeah. who was asked to uh, head up the ICE task force, made, a, I think, what was a very strong statement early on to say that, that we just simply couldn't arrest our way out of that problem. Uh, and there is an, an organisation called LEAP, very strong in the United States, uh, a little less so here, law enforcement uh, against prohibition, and they um, they have a role to play here as well. So I think you're absolutely right. They need to be leading the debate. And we, when we have groups like the you know, law enforcement, the churches are often have often been you know very influential. Wesley Mission were influential around the medically supervised injecting facility. And if you can start to build that coalition, I'm I'm very confident that. There is an appetite in the Australian community for a more, a more rational, sensible debate. One that says, look, we, the last thing we want to do is repeat the mistakes we've made with alcohol. Um, mm. and, 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 and I think we don't want to head down that uh, sort of ultra-libertarian, hand it over to be corporate interests. But we do need to, be, to do things differently. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and it's time, it's time to look at what um, some of those things, things might look like. Yeah. Now, look, Fent. Fantastic uh, overview of the whole uh, current processes for uh, uh, drug reform. But we're not letting you off the air in the last minute without an update on, on how you're travelling, uh, having entered. Now, you're no stranger to this show. So we, we actually had you on before you got into the Senate, then after your maiden speech in the Senate, and now as the this is the first time back as the leader of the Greens Party. So have you become a party hack? Are you... <laughs> What's happened to no, you psychologically no, and emotionally? I want to become a party hack. I want to be taken out the back door and, and uh, you know, put out the pasture. Yeah, no, I've offered I'm, to do I'm, that. Yeah, <laughs> no, I'm still my own person and I'm, um, no, I'm enjoying the job. It's a, it's a really, you know, it's an amazing opportunity to be able to talk about things like this, mm. like drug law reform, and to know that you're able to shape the national debate. And I don't want to be like Joe Hockey who stands up, uh, you know, gives his valedictory speech... I think on uh, Thursday and talks about all the things that he should have done. You know, I think he was talking about negative gearing and yeah. um, capital gains tax reform and superannuation mm. reform and how important it was to do those things when he was arguing against them as treasurer. So, yeah. no, the last thing I'm going to be doing is um, is giving a valedictory speech that says, I wish I'd spoken up more loudly in yeah. support of a whole range of other things. So, do, you, do you think it's no, changed I'll take you? The opportunity. Do you think it's changed you, though, as a person, or, or have you just become uh, um, more, f more sort of measured? I don't, I don't think so. I, I think to be good at this job, you've got to have a strong sense of who you are and what you stand for, and let all the nonsense that goes on, you know, the sort of day-to-day, 24-hour news cycle just wash over you a bit. Mm. If you take that stuff too seriously, then it's very easy to 
lose perspective. Um, I mean, any any experience in life has to change you. That's the nature of mm. doesn't matter what you do. Um, so obviously, it's, you know, in some way it is. But I, I'd like to think that it's not changing who I am, what the reasons I got into the job, uh, what I'm trying to achieve, all of those things. I'm still mm. pretty clear about that. And. Mm. You know, as I said, I'll use the opportunity when it's when it's there. So, so have you got any advice for Associate Professor Alan Young? Well, uh, you're, you're talking to Alan, are you? Yes. <laughs> oh well, that's that's great to know. I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of Alan's work. Um, <laughs> he does. As let me just say, uh, as a uh, as a golfer, he makes a very good respiratory physician. <laughs> <laughs> the, the sledging started already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Richard. Look, wonderful having you on, and that was uh, fantastic to give your time. And uh, I've got to say, you talk a lot of sense. So uh, we'll catch up with you again. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Big fan of the show, and keep up the great work. Okay. See ya. Bye. That was uh, Senator Richard Dena Taylor talking about drug. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're listening to Three Triple R's Radio Therapy, and Associate Professor Alan Young is going to talk to us about sleep. Now, Alan, you've had a conference. Yes, look, we have had a conference in Melbourne. Um, so this is our national meeting that brings together all the um, you know, high-powered sleep researchers from around Australia mm. and um, also international speakers. So mm. you know, these conferences run over three days and they're just packed full of interesting information that um, updates us all and, and tell us about the latest and greatest. Mm. You're allowed to cough. Oh, good. Thank yeah, you. There's a cough button. You see that little red button there? If oh, you yeah. press that, it actually doesn't go down the tube. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a panic button no. and I got into trouble. <laughs> no, the panic room's next door. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, um, so, uh, look, I think um, there was a couple of points I wanted to make, and this sounds really basic, but, you know, one of the main take-home messages from <clears throat> this sleep meeting is just the importance of sleep. You know, we think about the three pillars of good health, which should be really diet, which everyone recognises, exercise, uh, but the one that everyone forgets about really is sleep. Mm. And we take it for granted. We're staying out late. We're getting up early. We're using electronic devices into the wee hours of the morning. And um, we forget to look after, you know, our our sleep. And I think, um, you know, we now know there's a, a large body of evidence that if we deprive ourselves of sleep, where, you know, it has adverse outcomes on our health. Mm. You know, things like our memory, attention, how we perform at work, how we drive a car, all of these things are affected. And so this is really one of the main take-home messages that's been reinforced over and over is that we need to get enough sleep. We need to respect our sleep and look after it. This comes under the topic of sleep hygiene. Which is an interesting topic. <laughs> yeah, look, it's an interesting term, the, the use of hygiene. makes it sound perhaps somewhat sterile and clean. Yeah. But, look, this, this is really important, and this is something that, um, you know, those that work in the self-sleep industry are always promoting. Yeah. So it's really the basics that we probably know intuitively but maybe don't put them into practice due to sort of lifestyle pressures. Um, so that's how we prepare for sleep. So it's things like having enough wind-down time before you go to bed. You know, it's very hard to jump off the treadmill, um, send off five emails, do some work and then switch the lights off and expect to fall asleep. So it's really about allowing, you know, 30 minutes to relax before bedtime, doing something in a quiet room like reading, listening to music, dimming the lights, which then um, helps, um, you know, set our body clock that it's it's night time's coming up and um, trying to to empty our mind so that we can can sleep well. So a video game or television are not good... Uh, to lead into the sleep time. Yeah, look, that's exactly right. So anything that's stimulating, anything that um, involves light um, are, are really bad things for, for promoting sleep. Do we know why light? I mean, it is, it, it is videos and video games and television, whereas reading and listening to music are different. They're auditory and uh, so it's a different input. But why light? Yeah, so, so light um, has a specific action in that it, um, um, when light um, hits our, the back of our eyes, the retina, it sends a signal to the brain and it affects our hormones, particularly this hormone called melatonin, that um, 
um, helps to set our sleep-wake cycle. So bright light resets our body clock to stay awake. And, you know, in the, in the days pre the Industrial Revolution when there was no electricity, the sun would be the only main source of light. And so our body clock would fit in with daytime, nighttime and easily um, respond to that. But nowadays we have light sources 24-7. So if we expose ourselves to light too much then that can impact on our sleep. So I, w- I want to throw you a case uh, that um, we briefly discussed literally before, just as you're walking in. This was a case where um, I'd seen a, a, a man who'd been uh, unwell for 18 months and he developed uh, cramping in his muscles and coarse twitching all over his body and then he cognitively started to... Um, go off and his memory was affected he was de- he was delirious he was confused and he was becoming very very unwell um, requiring intensive care and I'd gone to see him uh, toward 8 o'clock in the evening um, because he had been deteriorating and he was sitting in bed uh, reclining asleep and during the sleep he was sitting there literally eating his dinner uh, he was doing all the movements that you would do when you were eating a meal, using a knife and fork, putting it to his mouth, taking a drink of water. Quite complex behaviour, but profoundly asleep. Do you mean without actual food there? Without actual food there. There was no, there was nothing in front of him. It was very complex, intricate behaviour of a set pattern that we're very used to doing. And it was that in combination with the muscle disorder and the cognitive change that made that likely that it was a thing called Morvan syndrome, which is extremely uncommon. In fact, I've never seen a case in my life till then. But sleep, in sleep, we can do these, these are called parasomnias. Is this what, and we can do some very complex behaviour especially in when, when our sleep's disordered. Yeah, absolutely. So the interesting thing about sleep is it is a pattern of behaviour itself. And so in a normal person, we switch between wakefulness and sleep um, um, and they're, they're quite well uh, um, distinguished, uh, things you can do during sleep and during wakefulness. For instance, when we go into the deepest form of sleep, REM sleep or dream sleep, our body becomes paralyzed and this is a protective response because when we're dreaming the last thing we want to do is act out our dreams and so there are some disorders of sleep where people uh, lose that distinction between wakefulness and sleep and um, so one of the classic disorders is called REM sleep behavior disorder where people instead of being paralyzed whilst they're lying in bed dreaming they, they lose that paralysis and they can act out their dreams they'll literally jump out of bed you know, run away from animals um, and, you know, can actually injure themselves, you know, run through windows and so on. The the patient you're describing has a slightly different variation of one of these parasomnias um, where where behaviours occur during another type of sleep called non-REM sleep, which is really a lighter form of sleep. Um, But people can act out quite complex behaviours whilst they're actually asleep. And in children, the commonest form of this, and in adults, is really sleepwalking. Um, And the the, the person will have no memory of this event, um, but um, essentially they're they're sort of halfway between wakefulness and sleep. So I suspect this is what um, your patient had, but a more complex form of this disorder. So so most people would probably recognise some point in their lives when they've been asleep and they've actually felt paralysed. They're, they're sort of on the verge between being more awake and in REM sleep, and you actually know you can't move, you, uh, and you remember it. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a well-described phenomenon that is normal, and it's actually called sleep paralysis, and it's where people wake up and they've still got that last little bit probably of REM sleep just disappearing from their system, so they still have the residual paralysis, um, but they're actually awake, and so they're now experiencing it. It can be quite distressing because you're lying there in bed awake but unable to move. I've had that three times in my life, the most terrifying experience I've ever had in my life. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it, is, it is, can be very terrifying, but it actually is a normal response or a normal phenomenon, yeah. and it's only where it becomes persistent um, that, that it's an issue. Yeah. Um, what what about what what about what's going on in the world at the moment? What what are the hot topics in terms of sleep and interventions for 
correcting people's sleep, making it proper. Yeah. So, look, I think um, like all industries at the moment, technology is is the big ticket item. So, you know, we can do amazing things with monitoring people, <clears throat> you know, in the old traditional sense was always in the hospital, uh, but now it can be done at home. Uh, the devices that we can use to monitor people's sleep and wakefulness um, are becoming smaller. Um, the data can now be sent in real time into mm-hmm. the hospital. So, so this is probably the latest and greatest is ways to, you know, traditional sleep studies you'd come into the sleep lab, sleep overnight, you've got, you know, 25 different wires connecting you, measuring your brain waves, your breathing, your heart rate, these sorts of things, looking for disorders of sleep. And uh, But nowadays we can actually do that at home. And there's a lot of research showing we can do this very effectively at home. And so this takes the pressure off the hospital system that we can move it out and also makes it easier for uh, the people that we're assessing because they don't have to come into hospital to have every test. Does that mean you've got to wear a little hat leads or something? Uh, well, there's a few different ways you can do it. But um, essentially you can either come into the hospital and have these things attached before you go home. Um, I have heard an interesting case where um, a patient went home with all their uh, leads attached and um, they were advised to drive home but they took the train and uh, the next thing they knew, I think someone was calling the police suggesting that they might have had an, uh, an explosive device <laughs> attached to them so you do have to be a little bit careful but uh, no I, I, um, so essentially these things are stuck on with little sticky plasters or EEG leads so um, or you can just teach people to do it themselves at home. So I, I think I've said this to you before I, I still cannot understand why respiratory physicians do sleep uh, and not neurologists. Yes, because well, that's, I mean, that's a slightly loaded question, yeah, Tallman, so given that you are a neurologist. <laughs> but um, yeah, look, it's it's historical. So in some countries, like the US, neurologists um, are the main proponents of sleep medicine. Yeah. But in Australia, look, it really came down to the fact that most breathing disorders um, get worse at night. Yes. So if your oxygen levels um, low during the daytime, at night time it gets worse. And so really, these disorders of um, ventilation, we call it, um, were, were the domain of of lung or respiratory physicians and so then they accrue sleep apnea is a part of that yeah exactly and so sleep apnea which is the co- you know the commonest condition that we see at night where people stop breathing overnight um, is is really what led to the development of, of sleep medicine in Australia now you happen to have brought in uh, one of your special assistants um, and if I'd be correctly saying your name is Lachlan. Now, Lachlan, you, you've been assisting uh, your dad for a while in his endeavours? Yes. Yeah. And what do you think of your dad? He's a pretty good dad. Is he? And do you think he's a good doctor? Yes. Yeah, I do too. And where's your sister and mum at the moment? They are in Shepparton. What are they doing in Shepparton? A soccer tournament. Oh, mum's playing soccer? No. My sister is. Oh, okay. Well, look, we're very pleased that you and your dad have given up a Sunday and come into the show to talk to us, and thank you very much for coming. All right, thanks. Okay. Um, for letting letting us come in. You're welcome. (laughs) Okay. Three, triple, ah. Dr. Anabolix, you've also been at conference. Oh, look, I have. It's been a busy week, uh, Tallman. Look, this week I went to the 8th International Criminal Justice Conference in Melbourne. Mm. This is organised by AXO, which is a wonderful Melbourne-based company who provide a lot of support services for people leaving prison, trying to reintegrate back into society. It's a great organisation. And it was a really good conference, and one of its big themes was how does jail affect lives? And, of course, this is an area of interest of mine because I'm, I work with a lot of people who come out of jail and or have for a long time, and we've been talking about good men and most and most of the people we see are, are males of course it's about to a ratio of about 95 percent to five percent in uh, victoria so we had a number of visiting speakers uh, from all over the world and many of the keynote speakers were people who have been involved in managing corrective services not only in australia but new zealand and a lot from the u.s and one of the major themes was how do we best spend the public dollar in order to get the best reduction in crime and violence? And as you know, we're in an um, environment over the last few years, particularly in Victoria, of being, quote, tough on crime and reducing sentencing options and getting rid of parole things. That's, so we're in a, that's the environment that we're working in currently. So it was very interesting to hear how uh, there was a lot of evidence of a very different approach happening overseas in places that you wouldn't maybe even suspect. One example of that was that we had a speaker 
who was a very interesting, his name was Senator Jerry Madden from Texas. Now, Texas, as you might know, has got uh, 27 million people in one, one state and uh, you know, has had a rising population over the last 10 years. Now, this chap was a, a, a senator. He's a self-described far-right conservative Republican to the as far right as you can get, he describes himself. You know? Just right of Godzilla. <laughs> and he said he was, he, has, he was a West Point graduate. He was an engineer. And he came, he, as a senator, he was given the task about 10 years ago in Texas of, of being the authority managing the jails, the corrective service system. And he said he didn't have a clue what he was doing. He walked in and he said, tell me, to his boss, he said, tell me what do you want me to do to the, um, uh, the governor who it was. And he says, you know, I don't care what you do, but you're not spending one more penny on jails. We can't afford any more jails. It was costing the state a fortune. And as you know, Republicans don't like spending, just like a lot mm. of the far right don't like mm. spending. And uh, he said, that's the only bit of information I had. He said, I didn't have a clue about anything else. So what he said, he said that was, he took that as his um, code, his absolute code, that he wasn't going to spend one more dollar on another bed. And and there were things in the works at that stage. Mm. So what he did is he said the first thing he decided to do was to cross the aisle and he went to people who knew what they were talking about in terms of uh, of jails and they were people on the, on the Democrat side and he found out that the Democrats wanted to reduce the number of beds for very different reasons. They want they had they're coming from a sort of a you know health safety and um, mm. uh, community social justice point of view. So he said he found out that he had immediate bipartisanship on this issue and he made the most of that over the next 10 years. And uh, this has sparked a whole new way of thinking about prison in Texas. And they were spending a fortune and um, they uh, they decided... The first thing they did was to gather a whole lot of data about what what was driving prison admissions, you know, yeah. entrance to prison. And they got together a whole lot of groups of people working in the field and asked them for advice. They said, what should we do to stop people coming to jail? Just tell us, you know, go mad, tell us what you... And they had a huge a number of people stepping up and giving them advice. And he said that now this whole process has been renamed Justice Reinvestment in Texas. This is the name of the, of the movement, if you like. They've taken the money that would have been spent on prisons and moved it into other places. And they, for example, they gave a whole lot of substance abuse beds to the parole board and said, don't send people back to jail if they fail parole, send them to these beds. Yep. They, they moved money into um, educational things, they moved money into uh, social, um, social welfare areas, they moved, they had mandatory admissions, short-term incarcerations, immediate short-term incarcerations rather than waiting for ages in, um, you know, uh, uh, what do you call them, short-term beds, long-term beds. Mm. They had set up a huge alcohol treatment service both inside and outside of the jail, so people coming out in a much better place than going back on the booze. So um, after about um, uh, three years of this uh, new way of working, the recidivism rate went from 28, that's people who re-offended after they left, went from 28% to 16%. Now to put that in context, our current recidivism rate in Victoria is about 40 plus of percent. It's ridiculous. And they had a recidivism rate of 28%, it's gone down to 16%. Uh, after 10 years they had the lowest crime rate in Texas since 1968. So initially he said his first, uh, his Republican friends first of all said, look this is going soft on crime, you know, this is the opposite of what we want. He said, no, this is Republican conservative thinking. Mm. Reduce spending, get the government, gets, reduce the size of government to being small government, mm. uh, put in, enhance personal responsibility by giving people the tools to do it. This is conservative thinking. Mm-hmm. And he's turned it around because the spending's gone down. So so this is a government... These are government prisons, government-run programs. Look, I, I'm actually not 100% sure whether they are... I, I, I believe there is a lot of privatisation in, in America, like there is here, but I, I couldn't be specific how many of the prisons he was talking about were privately or, or government-run. I'm not 100% sure about that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's available online somewhere. Justice, um, his name's uh, Madden. Senator Madden. Um, yeah. So, but uh, there was an eleven percent drop in incarceration. So the numbers actually fell down. They've closed three of their prisons in Texas, and one of the amazing stats, he said, uh, they had four thousand six hundred juvenile prisoners. Four thousand six hundred. That's gone down to thirteen hundred, and he's saved the state conservatively, they reckon, about $2 billion in projected jail costs. 
So huge now. Which, which then is available. Which then or? is more available. And you'd think that would be, you know, okay, so we're soft on crime now, are we? So the crime rate's going to go up. No, the crime rate's the lowest since 1968. Yeah. So this has been, his conservative friends have now seen that there's a huge big movement to spread this to other states. And it's been, it's been a turnaround in thinking. The, w- the way I think about this, I suppose, is that there are, there are people who um, will commit crime who are psychopathic or sociopathic and they have no other way of operating and very little intervention will necessarily change their behaviour outcomes. And then what has happened in the dragnet is that a lot of other people that are not sociopathic that do and can learn and have insight get caught up in mainstream prison sentencing inappropriately. And that... that which is tertiary education for crime. That's right. That's right, exactly. So, And that comes to being socially connected, having um, an education and also having opportunity in life, whether well, that's employment know, opportunity or... We know from the Ombudsman's report and, and the uh, JSS report from last year that the most uh, uh, the bulk of our prison population comes from 6% of our postcode. Half them comes from 6% of our postcodes. Yeah. Social disadvantage, inequality of um, uh, social social injustice is a clear driver for, and pathway. This is you know, not necessarily born to go to jail. You know, there, is, there are things that happen that we can reverse that are human, plottable, plausible, observable and reversible that we can do to stop you at the age of 10 going from failing at school to being a really good... Um, uh, com- commandiros, you know, commandiro. Yeah. So, I mean, th- th- do you think that um, government really have their head around this in Australia? Uh, or, and, or is this process they're getting their head around Well, let, let me tell you, this is a really interesting question because the, uh, one of the big keynote speakers also was a lady who's uh, a psychologist who's working for the new Ravenhall prison. Now, our government has just uh, spent and, and contracted out for the new Ravenhall prison to so be built. So it's a private prison? This is a private prison that's going to be in, in Victoria, right next to Dame Phyllis Frost out in Ravenhall. And it's being built as we speak, and the contract was worth $2.5 billion, with a B, dollars. And the GO Corporation, which is one of the world's biggest um, correction corporation, has won the on the um, tender. tender. Mm-hmm. After a lot of lobbying, there was lobbying by private organisations, a you know, hugely w- wanted tender. Um, interestingly, we, Australia, the GEO uh, company in Australia has 10% of our, 10% of GEO worldwide's income comes from Australia. So it was a, a big, uh, you know, a significant chunk. So we've now uh, contracted out to this organisation to run Ravenhall. And it's, uh, it's being set up that the uh, psychologists and the other staff who were presenting to us gave a terrific account of what's happening out there in the, in the building stage, in the planning stage. And it looks like it's going to be, uh, you know, a state-of-the-art correctional facility. It, it's, uh, it's, it's, it sounds terrific. It's going to have, you know, different areas that f- it's going to be flexible in its um, design. It's going to have inpatient and outpatient follow-up, which is very good. Interestingly, the state government has for the first time as I understand it included some financial incentives for the organisation to reduce recidivism which is really interesting so they've put they've uh, put an outpatient follow up uh, strategy in place yeah. so you don't, you don't mean patient Sorry, in 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 inmate. In Sorry, mate I, I beg your pardon. Yeah, that's that's my stopping back. What am I, a doctor or something? Jordan, lay down. I'll give you a bit of therapy. <laughs> Some more sleep, obviously. Yeah. So um and uh, so this is and there's going to be a 75 bed extra extra forensic beds, mental health beds. So this is all. I so, mean, it's terrific. You but know, they're incentivising recidivism rates. Uh, reduced recidivism yes. rates. Yeah. yeah. So that that they're so the government's. You know, delegating the responsibility for the running and the governance. Well, the governor, the, 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 I'm sure there was, no, you know, no um, uh, problem with the probity of the tender at all. Sure. And it's all publicly available. But what it looks when you look at the tender, it looks like what they measured was if this is the cost of government running it, and this is the cost that the the, the, the geo and the other people say they can run it. They can do it less. They can do it more efficient with less. They can do it more efficiently. Therefore, uh, we'll go. We'll go with the um, the fully outsourced uh, mm. project, and that apparently is on paper the case. But one of the people in the audience uh, asked a question after we heard about the presentation. He says, "Isn't there going to be some tension between the, the problem of um, providing these good services and getting people um, out and not not reoffending, and the need to maintain the kind of you know bed day per day?" 
medium cost and charges that, mm. that uh, the company and that the need for profit because this is a very big profitable organisation. And um, the the psychologist uh, who was talking to us and she was just a lovely and very experienced woman who was worked in Melbourne for a long time. Her her response was, "I don't feel that tension," which is, and I think she was absolutely being authentic when she said that. And uh, it was it, it brought up some interesting discussions around um, through the conversation. And I think the the question is, I, I don't think the tension is being felt in there. I think they're doing a fabulous job, doing the best they can with what the government has asked them to do. I think the question maybe is a more social one, standing back from that and say, do we want to have a situation where we're um, putting the, the, the number of beds in our system sort of in the hands of a group which doesn't necessarily benefit from them closing down mm. uh, you know in the same in the same conference we're hearing how people are decarcerating all, all over mm. the all mm. over the world and uh, finding better ways to spend money so if if the initial um, decision making was about how do can we do this cheap or can geo do this cheaper than government they were probably looking at a fixed number of mm. inmates over mm. the years what happens if we find ways to respend that money well well probably I still can see that working in as much as that may be become the main prison mm. and then if we reduce the amount of people being uh, admitted to prison mm. uh, sent to prison uh, they we wouldn't have to build new prisons and so I can get how that equation would work economically. Well, that, that, that's a possibility, and I guess that would be um, predicated by the fact that there would be some public prisons that would close down. I guess if, if, they were all, if all our prisons were subsumed to private, then that wouldn't, that wouldn't no. apply. Yeah. But that's, so that's one interesting social question, I think, that we can ask ourselves. Where does the public-private thing um, click in on this, on this issue? The other thing, of course, is what if we took that $100 million a year, as they have in Texas, and said, where, you know, we've got these... I mean, they're going to have computers in their rooms. These guys, these prisons going to have computers in their rooms. They're going to have access to training. They're going to have access to education. It's going to be fabulous care, you know. Mm. You just couldn't help but listen to this and think, why can't we do that before they go in? Mm. Why can't we take these kids who we know are on this pathway, these young men who we see in our juvenile courts and our juvenile um, places, and we, we, the teachers put their hand up, they're suspended from school, we know what they're doing there. Why can't we put this $100 billion into these 6% of postcodes and, and, okay. and avoid I, this? I, I think I've got the answer. Okay. <laughs> Everybody's got to care. Yeah, everyone's got to care. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. Right. So the whole population has got to care about this mm, and have mm. got to care about uh, not just their own vested interest. And, you know, if you live in the uh, the leafy suburbs of, of low crime, it's, you're probably not touched by it so much. But you, if you have a social awareness and you care, then, you know, you advocate for that through your political... But, but if, you, if, you, if there is evidence there that not only does it save money, it reduces the crime rate, then you don't have to be mm. soft on crime. You can just be smart on crime. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's, in fact, that should be the new catch cry. We, we should become smart on crime. All right. Look, we've had a great show. Uh, thank you to Associate Professor Alan Young, who came in at extremely short notice, but has delivered an absolute gem. And uh, Senator Richard De Natale, who likewise is, he's, uh, he's a rising star, as we know. And to you, Anabolics. Lovely to see you again. Yeah, we're doing it tough, but we're doing it long. <laughs> see, see, see you soon. And guess what? Radiotherapy will be on next Sunday. <laughs> and Jeb came in also at very short notice to panel for us and has done it seamlessly, which is a lot better than the dead air time I would have given you. So uh, <laughs> listen in to us next week. We'll be back. See you then. La Grosse Radio pour des grands enfants. Triple RFM. Big radio for big kids. Is that right? All oh, right, okay. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.